to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, a righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I pray these things in the name of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated, church. Good morning. What a joy to be together today, amen? If you notice some people uh, sleeping today, it's probably not my fault. Um, it may be. I won't, I, won't, I won't say that 100%. No, our students had their fall retreat this weekend. Uh, so if I can get a woo-woo for them, I'm glad you guys are here. Did anyone sleep more than like 30 minutes last night? Anyone? Uh, but they had adult leaders who loved and served them. And so, uh, man, praise God for our student ministry and our kids ministry and all these, all these people who love Jesus and are spending their time loving and serving the kids of our church and our community. Amen? Amen. We are continuing our time in Ruth today. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 3, if you want to go ahead and turn there. By the way, if you're in this space today, you don't have a physical copy of the Bible with you. We have ones around the room under the seats. We are really passionate about access to God's word. Here at Emmanuel, if you're here in this space and you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to snag one of those and take it home. Or even talk to the pastors and we'll get you one uh, nicer. Uh, But today we're going to be in Ruth chapter 3. It's going to take me just a minute to get there. A couple things I need to tell you before we jump in today. The first one is a reminder of something you already heard about, uh, but it's Revive Night coming up on the 11th. That's this week. Uh, Guys, I'll just tell you, if you don't, if you haven't been to one of these kind of things before or haven't been to a prayer and worship night in recent history, I would love for you to prioritize coming to hang out with us this Friday. It is going to be a beautiful, spirit-filled time of refreshing and encouraging um, I, I just love to see you guys there. If you're able to be there, come hang out this space this Friday evening at 7. Second thing is this. I do need to give you guys a content warning before we jump into this sermon. I know that's a, a little bit buck wild, but the reality is we're actually not going to be able to fully engage Ruth chapter 3 without covering um, a couple sexual themes. Uh, and so I understand that the room is mixed, and uh, mixed in age and maturity, and so you can, I will be tasteful. But I'm just, I'm warning you guys now, we're going to skirt the line between PG and PG-13. But I've been told that if we go PG-13, I am allowed one cuss word, so I'm deciding where to put that in this. Uh, No, but just fair warning, fair warning, and it's not me uh, just trying to be gratuitous. It really is crucial to our understanding of the text today, so so bear with me. Uh, Let me catch us up in the story, and then we'll kind of go from there and go into it. So if you haven't been with us the last couple weeks, Story of Ruth is this short little book in the Old Testament, takes place during the time of the judges, tells this beautiful gospel-rich story of this family that experiences a ton of suffering and also experiences God's redemption. So we learn about this woman, Naomi, who is the wife of a Jewish man named Elimelech, who had left Bethlehem, left Israel, the promised land, during a time of famine and settled in Moab, Israel, the nation, the land of, of God's enemies. While there, they experience all sorts of tragedy. Elimelech dies, both his son dies, and we're left with the widow Naomi and her two widowed daughters-in-law. Eventually, one of those daughters-in-law goes home, but Ruth and her one daughter-in-law, or Naomi and her one daughter-in-law, Ruth, a Ruth who has decided to adopt completely the practice, the identity 
of, of Naomi's family, Naomi's people. They returned to Israel, to Bethlehem, the city where they lived, uh, but they're in this place of extreme need and poverty. We see in the story that they are in a place where they are literally facing starvation. And so Ruth goes and she basically she seeks to glean, which is basically a way of trying to gather the leftovers of any particular grain harvest to try and feed her family. And we see God show up and provide for them, specifically through a godly family and a righteous man named Boaz who makes allotments uh, to make sure uh, Ruth and Naomi's family are fed and taken care of. And that's where we are at in the story. So Ruth has been going day by day during the barley harvest to glean in the fields of this man, Boaz, this godly man who's offering protections and care for her in a society where there's not a lot of protections and not a lot of care for a young widow. And it's, it's actually a really important part of the story to understand that piece. Ruth is, is this very like proactive, godly woman of character who, who's pretty intense about loving and caring for her family. But there's not a lot of opportunities for her to actually do that. And so God moves and moves specifically through this guy, Boaz, to create this provision. Our text last week in Ruth 2 ended with, with Naomi kind of giving this glint of hope where she goes, hey, Boaz is one of our redeemers. Now this is connected to these couple different laws, but really this principle within ancient Jewish culture, which was this, the ancient the Israelites connected to God, understood their relationship to God through a covenant that God had made with them on Mount Sinai through the prophet Moses. And one of the concrete aspects of this covenant, one of the primary ways that God's people knew and understood their relationship to him in this covenant was through the promised land that God had given them. He actually, you can read about it in the end of Joshua, family by family assigned lots of land to the different clans and families within Israel. And their connection to this land and the provision of that land was their direct physical connection to God's love, relationship, provision for them. So these laws were put in place called redemption laws, which were basically set up to make sure these families were connected to the land God had given them. Say, for instance, a family falls into poverty and has to sell off their land. A redeemer would be morally obligated, if possible, to buy up the land and then sell it back to the family as they're able to pay back for it without interest. There's also this idea of the Leverite marriage, which is the idea that if a family has no male heirs or someone tragically dies and the land is not able to go on and pass on to the next generation, that a close godly relative would bear a son with the widow so that the land, the blessing, the covenant could be passed on generation by generation. So Naomi tells Ruth, hey, look, this guy, this isn't just a coincidence that you found this field. This guy is one of our potential redeemers. He can actually get us out of this situation. But then Ruth chapter two ends with this interesting piece that says, Ruth worked with Boaz's field, worked that till the end of the barley harvest. So she goes back day by day and you see Boaz is very obviously providing for her. His kindness, his compassion is toward her family, but there's no movement toward any kind of formal redemption marriage, anything like that, for two to three months as the barley harvest continues. And that's where our text picks up. We're going to do the same thing we've done the last couple of weeks and kind of walk through this verse by verse, bit by bit, and I'll kind of point out some of the historical and cultural pieces as we go to kind of help clarify it. But I think what we're going to see in our text today is actually this really beautiful picture of the provision of God. So one of the themes we've said each week in Ruth is this idea that God sees you. 
that he, has, that he has compassion and care for you, that we worship a God who is not indifferent to the suffering, the doubts, the hurt of his people, but that he actually sees you, sees you in this world, sees you in your suffering, sees you in your hurt, and he delights to care for you. And we're going to see that work out in a really specific way in this text. And we're going to see it through this contrast the author gives us between Naomi and Ruth. See, what we're going to see in this is that Naomi, in the midst of her suffering, in the midst of her hurt, is brought to a place of fear and anxiety and really desire to control and manipulate her situation. And she's going to scheme and try and make the situation go the way she wants. We're going to see that contrasted with Ruth, who actually, in the same scenario, in the same risk, in the same worries, in the same whatever, chooses to trust God and walk forward in faith. Walk forward in bold faith, trusting God's provision. We're going to see that contrast between this idea of worry, anxiety, control, scheming, and trust and faith. And I think it's going to lead us back to this beautiful idea that God cares for you. That he delights to care for you. That as a child of God, you have no need of living a life controlled by fear, anxiety, worry, scheming. Because God has made a way for you. He's made a way. He delights to care for you. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So pray with me, and we're going to jump into this text bit by bit. Father, we ask that you would just make your presence known this morning. As we take a few minutes to dig into this text, God, we ask that you would would be our discipler, that you would give clarity, that you would be the one who encourages and challenges us as we dig through this text, and that each and every one of us would leave this space today having heard from you and having been encouraged by you. Father, we love you. We trust you for these things. So we pray them in your name. Amen. Okay, verse one of chapter three. Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, my daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Ruth chapter three opens with what seems like a pretty stark turn. At this point, it's been a good two to three months since they arrived back in Bethlehem, and all of a sudden, seemingly, Naomi is actually really concerned with making permanent plans for Ruth's care. Again, this this just seems like a pretty big contrast from where we saw her in the opening of chapter two, right? Like where she was so caught up in her sorrow that she was unwilling to even go and glean and provide for her own welfare. At this point, She's actually starting to think through not just herself, not just her own moment, but the needs of her daughter-in-law, the needs of Ruth, which, by the way, isn't that surprising. I mean, God has provided for her and her family. Like, she's got those immediate needs met. She has food to eat, and we can see God slowly drawing her out of her shell. Remember, she started this story by renaming herself, saying, call me Mara, for I am bitter. The Lord has made my life bitter. And God, in his grace and his love, is slowly drawing her out of that shell, drawing her back to the reality of his love for her, his provision for her. And as she comes out of that sorrow, she begins thinking about what a future might look like. So she tries to start setting up a solution for Ruth. They know that Boaz is a potential redeemer for their family, but at this point, it's the end of the harvest. Right? They've had a daily reason for Ruth to go and interact with Boaz's people and Boaz himself. But now that's done. It's been a while. 
And while Boaz has kindly provided for their family, he has not made any public moves toward actual formal redemption. Which, by the way, makes sense from the outside looking in. Obviously, Boaz is a godly man who has compassion for their family, but it looks like his compassion just doesn't extend to the actual work and public shame of marrying Ruth and redeeming their family. So what does Naomi do with that? That, by the way, is a really important question because it connects to the way we consider the problems, the pain, the struggles that we face in this life as followers of God. She's presented with a pretty big problem. The harvest is over. They're about to lose their reason to even interact with this guy. And God has not moved him or pushed him hard enough to get him to do anything about their situation besides giving them their daily needs, their food, right? Where's the future solution? Where's the permanency? What would you do in a similar situation? How would you consider through this? What, would, I mean, what is the actual, actual way forward for them when they're stuck in this place of a real vulnerability, right? Real risk to themselves. Well, what Naomi does is she takes matters into her own hands and she begins to scheme. In verse two, it says, now isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So wash, put on perfumed oil, wear your best clothes, go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the men know you were there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying. Go in, uncover his feet, and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. Now, we've got to admit here that this plan actually makes a ton of sense from an earthly perspective, but it is a terrible plan. And I'm going to give you a couple of reasons to hopefully illuminate why this is such a bad idea for Naomi. So the barley harvest is done, and with that comes the threshing and the harvest festival. If you're unfamiliar with this practice, that's fine. Most of us are buying our grain in the form of pre-made sliced bread at the store, right? So <laughs> this is not something that's like familiar to most of us. But during the harvest, the stalks will be cut, gathered up into bundles. This is where Ruth has been working, gleaning the stuff that's dropped. Those bundles would then be taken to the threshing floor. This was a public place, a flat space with either baked clay or stone floor. The bundles would be laid out and crushed by animal hooves or cartwheels. Then they would take all the crushed bundles and toss them up in the air, in the wind, and they would separate into three categories. The heavy, valuable food, the grain, would fall down quickly to the ground and be gathered up. The long straw could be raked up and stored as animal fodder. And the light and useless chaff would blow away in the wind. The whole community, and by the whole community I really mean the men, would gather around this work and get it done really quickly for the entire community. And afterward, they would have a massive party. Massive party. In fact, in surrounding cultures, these parties were essentially known for their absolute debauchery. They had pagan fertility rites and orgies all connected to them, right? In ancient Jewish culture, the threshing floor was actually a euphemism for debauchery. These are wild. And that's a major escalation in the story, I think. Because Naomi's plan is for Ruth to go to that party, right? Like she's making an assumption about what's going to go down here and says, all right, Ruth, here's the deal. This guy has not proposed to you yet. 
And we gotta get this thing moving. So tonight, clean yourself up, take a bath, put on makeup, put on perfume, put on your pretty clothes, and sneak into the wild drunken party. Don't let anyone know you're there. Very good idea, because it was not a good place to be for a young woman, right? Wait till Boaz drunkenly falls asleep, and then, you know, go grab him. He'll, t- he'll, he'll tell you what to do. I, this is a wildly dangerous, risky, inappropriate thing to ask of Ruth. And by the way, it gets worse. I need to pre-apologize for what I'm about to say, but it's actually very important for understanding this text. It's this idea, ancient Jews, and this is actually seen throughout the scripture, but they would use the word foot as a euphemism for male genitalia. And in fact, the phrase uncovering of his feet was a pretty common euphemism that I doubt I need to explain to you. It seems that Naomi's plan was to get Ruth to basically take advantage of Boaz and to get him in a place where he was intoxicated with alcohol and engaged sexually with him. And there's a whole thing here that's connected. You see, the ancient Jewish people did not have an understanding of what we would call premarital sex. In their context, if someone engaged in sex, they were married, period. And only someone of dishonor would ignore that. So Naomi's plan is, Ruth... Get gussied up, go to the drunken party, take advantage of this guy while he's intoxicated, and then wake him up. He will have to marry you and redeem our family. That's a pretty bad plan, right? Like, again, I go back to, this makes sense from an earthly perspective. But this is not a good way to accomplish what Ruth and Naomi need accomplished, right? This is manipulative. She's directly asking her daughter-in-law, to sin, to try and care for their family. And but what makes this whole thing even more interesting, by the way, is that Naomi speaks exclusively in euphemisms and entendres here. We, we miss a lot of this in just the English translation, but there's this really important piece to this. This comes back to, we've said this each week, Ruth is brilliantly written. It's written in a way that the actual writing draws you in and helps you think through and understand the text. So when Naomi speaks to Ruth, she speaks in innuendo. She doesn't say anything directly. She doesn't say, go wait for Boaz to get drunk and take advantage of him sexually. Instead, she uses these phrases that have meaning. And the purpose is this. The ancient Jewish readers would have read the beginning of this chapter and been like, dang, that's wild. That's a massive escalation. This is incredibly erotically charged language to have in a book of Bible story, right? The purpose is to get the reader there to go, is this really how this is going to go down? And what we see, what we see, by the way, that has led to this text being one of the most fiercely debated texts in not just the book of Ruth, the Old Testament. Because of the purposely vague language the, 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 the writer uses here, there's actually a ton of debate about what actually goes down on the threshing floor that night. But I think there's actually really good clarity here. Uh, that'll help us get to where we're going with this text. The author wants to take Naomi's plan and let you see the blatantly sinful intentions of it. The reason, I believe, is actually simple and really interesting in how it illuminates the story. You see, sexual immorality is deep in the history and the stereotypes about Moabites. 
If you don't recall your Genesis history super well, don't worry. I'll catch us up. In Genesis 19, we're told the story of where the Moabite people came from. It's the story about uh, Abraham's nephew Lot. God gives judgment on this, these, two, these twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're destroyed for their idolatry and their sin. But God, in his grace, allows Lot and his family to escape because of a whole bunch of wild circumstances. It actually only ends up being Lot and his two daughters that escape. They run off and they hide in a cave in the hills. And within a few days, his daughters become convinced that they're the last human beings left on planet Earth. It's a buck wild story. You should go back and read it. But they become convinced they're the last three human beings left on Earth. And these two daughters' thought is, well, we have to preserve the human race. So their solution is to intoxicate their father and take advantage of him so they can become pregnant and bear children. Which is where the man Moab comes from. He's born of that union. And the nation of Moab is descended from that guy. So this is built in to the the history, the stereotypes of the Moabite people. That they're sexually immoral. This sort of scheming is exactly the kind of prejudice that many Jewish people had toward Moabites. Naomi basically tells Ruth to play into the cultural assumptions against her to get what they both want. And I'm just going to say this clearly. It's pretty diabolical, right? To a guy like Boaz who's actually gone out of his way to love and serve and care for this family. But take heart, church. God is good. And Ruth is a woman of character. And the story doesn't go down that way. In verse 5, so Ruth said to her, I will do everything you say. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had charged her to do. After Boaz ate, drank, and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley, and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, Boaz was startled and turned over, and there, lying at his feet, was a woman. Ruth says, I'll do exactly what you tell me to do. Now, I know this is strange, but this, again, this is this cultural piece that's actually important for understanding the story. Ruth's honoring of Naomi as her mother-in-law is a culturally important part of establishing her as a woman of character. But remember, Naomi has asked Ruth to do something sinful. So what could Ruth actually do? This is where I think this part gets kind of humorous and interesting. Naomi has only spoken to Ruth in metaphor and innuendo. Wink, wink, nod, nod, here's what I want you to do. And so Ruth says, I will do exactly what you tell me to do. And so she does, to the letter. She takes a bath, she puts on her nice clothes, she sneaks down to the party, she waits till they're asleep, she walks up to the sleeping Boaz, who, by the way, the text goes out of the way. Again, this is a little bit that we kind of miss in the English. The text goes out of the way to let you know that Boaz is not engaging in a drunken party. The phrase used that he's in high spirits is specifically a phrase that's to let you know he's in a good mood and not drunk, but he's having a good evening. And further, further shown by the fact that he wakes up sober, right, and is able to engage in the moment going on. She waits till he falls asleep, And she quite literally pulls the blanket off of his feet and then just sits there. Which you go, oh, okay, is that some like ancient like ceremony with cold? No, that's just as weird then as it is now. (laughs) She pulls the blanket off of his feet and she sits there and she waits until he gets cold enough to wake up. I, I love this piece. I love this piece because essentially what we see is that Ruth has no intention of approaching Boaz as a Moabite. 
She has no intention of approaching him in a place of diabolical scheming, in a place of sinful immorality. She is approaching him as a brother in her covenant with God. She not only breaks the mold of the cultural narrative about her, but beyond that, her ethical character stands for itself. Her and Boaz meet up in the middle of the night at the threshing floor, the place of immorality. The place where the assumption is. This is where people ignore God's sexual ethics and do whatever they want. And yet they meet each other with love and honor and dignity. And I think there's something about that that is just immensely beautiful. He wakes up stone cold sober, concerned about what's going on. Which, by the way, you would be. (laughs) He wakes up and goes, I'm cold, and then sits up. And there's a woman sitting there looking at him. And by the way, like she's, she's part of her formal clothes at this point would have been a really large shell that covered up most of her face. And it's the middle of the night and he has no clue what's going on, right? Who are you? What is this? What's happening right now? It, it makes sense. Like what, what we get from this is that Boaz was not a guy who came down here to party and be debaucherous. He's a guy who had to get his work done. And so he brought his family and employees together and they did the work and then celebrated with the feast together and then went to bed. And he slept on the grain because he needed to go, that's like the majority of his income for the year, right? And it's sitting in a pile in the open. So he sleeps on it to guard it, right? Look where it goes. So he asked, who are you? I'm Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing for you are a family redeemer. In verse 9, we get the key for understanding the entire book of Ruth. Boaz wants to know what the heck is going on. And again, he very likely doesn't recognize her. He knows Ruth in the context of the heat of the day and sweat and getting work done. And here he sees her bathed and smelling nice and clothed and with her face mostly covered and it's the middle of the night and he just woke up, etc., etc. And he goes, what's going on right now? Which again is a picture of Boaz's own character. And I don't want to harp on this too much, but it would not have been outside the realm of possibility for prostitutes to seek to earn a little extra income on the night of the threshing harvest. It would have been a rather normative thing. Boaz wakes up and is like, who are you? What are you doing here? This is not my deal. And she responds quickly with something shocking. I'm Ruth. You're one of my redeemers. Redeem me. This is a wild response from Ruth. We miss some of this. Again, this is one of those pieces that just doesn't fully culturally translate. But I want you to, I want you to look at a couple things here. First off, this is a marriage proposal. Very bluntly. Ruth says, it's me, Ruth, the one you've been talking to for the last three months. You're one of our redeemers. Redeem me. Women didn't arrange their own marriages in this culture and in this time. And beyond that, beyond that, you have to remember, Boaz may have had a moral obligation to help redeem his family, but he is not legally required to do so. This is a wildly bold thing to ask. She's saying, I need you to buy my entire family's piece of land and keep it and care for it and hire people to work it and then eventually sell it back to our family with no interest. Will you do that for me? Oh, by the way, I need you to marry me, a Moabite, 
and take on the public scorn and shame that goes with that and then bear a son who can inherit that land. That's a big ask. It's very bold. It's very presumptuous. Some would say even inappropriate for her to be the one to initiate here and ask this. I mean, honestly, at this point, if Boaz wanted to redeem her, he could have at any point in these last several months. But look at Ruth. She is a woman who doesn't mess around. She's confident in this moment. And why is she confident? She's confident because she is a part of God's covenant people. She sees, she identifies with the people of Yahweh, with the covenant of Yahweh, with the provision of Yahweh. She is in need and God provides for his people. And in this moment, in this context with her need, the redeemer is how he does that. In her circumstances, God's provision is gonna look like a redeemer. So she approaches Boaz as a brother in covenant and she expectantly asks him, I need your help, redeem me. She even mirrors his own words of blessing back to him. I don't know if you remember this, but in the previous chapter, when Boaz meets Ruth for the first time, he prays this blessing over her about inclusion in the covenant. And he talks about her taking shelter under the wings of Yahweh and how he will care for her and include her in the covenant blessing. And so Ruth speaks that same language back and basically says, hey, Boaz, you are God's wings for me and my family right now. So do that thing you talked about. Shelter us, redeem us. I stinking love this scene. I love the boldness of Ruth in just going, this is how God's covenant works. So, you know, do it. In verse 10, then he said, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now don't be afraid, my daughter, for I will do whatever you say. Since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character, yes, it is true, I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I. So stay here tonight, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't, as the Lord lives, I will. Now, lie down until morning. So she lay down at his feet until morning, but got up while it was still dark. Then Boaz said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he told Ruth, bring the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. And when she held it out, he shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl and she went into town. Look at Boaz's response to Ruth's boldness. He's not offended, he's honored. I love that. Suddenly, by the way, we're let into what's actually been going on for these last three months. It's not that Boaz is not interested in Ruth. He's actually done the work in the background. There's another redeemer who has a better claim and a right to redeem Ruth first. And beyond that, we see this amazing piece that Boaz saw himself in some ways as out of Ruth's league. I love this. He's genuinely honored that a woman of her character would want to be married to him. We see Boaz's own character and Boaz's love for Ruth manifest. He's immediately concerned about her provision, her future, and her honor. He wants to get her home before anyone sees her there so that assumptions are not made about her integrity. He also sets up for her provision. I love this piece. One way or the other, he takes on the responsibility and says, I will seek out the other potential redeemer and I will get you taken care of. 
If he doesn't do it, I will, I promise. Essentially telling her, I'm gonna make sure you guys are taken care of by me or by another way, but either way, at the end of the day, you're gonna have a home. What a gift. And then, to top it all off, he gives her a fat pile of food to take home to Naomi. This, by the way, is, is a subtle little piece. It's Boaz's way of basically saying, look, I know Naomi put you up to this, so take her some food and let her know it's all going to be taken care of. He loads up her shawl with six measures of grain. In the Hebrew, this is actually a different measure than was used in the previous chapter. It equals about a third of what was given uh, in the previous chapter when he loaded her up the first day he met her. But just, just to put that in context, just so, we, just so we're clear on this, the idea here is that Boaz loads up Ruth with a good hundred pounds of grain to take home. I just, I just love the image of Naomi sending out Ruth to be as, if we're honest, seductive as possible in this context. And Boaz sends her home with her makeup on and her perfume and her nice clothes and a 100-pound bag of grain on her back. <laughs> I just love that image. But again, this is a picture of God's inclusion of Ruth in the covenant. You see, in chapter two, she was given gleaning. Those are God's provision for all the poor. But here in chapter three, she not only comes home with twice that, this time it isn't gleanings, it's the best. It's the harvest. It's the first fruits. It's the grain God gave to his people as part of his covenant blessing for them. And she comes home stooped over with the weight of God's covenantal provision for her and her family. Verse 16, she went to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who asked her, what happened? <laughs> Which is a really normal question if she comes home wearing her nice clothes with a 100-pound bag of grain on her shoulders. Ruth told her everything the man had done for her. She said, he gave me these six measures of barley because he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Naomi said, my daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he will not rest until he resolves this today. So Ruth heads home and dumps out the grain and lets Naomi know what's up. And we get this awesome scene with Naomi finally clicking in to what God is actually doing. She didn't have to scheme. She didn't have to. God was already working. He was already going to see it through. And it's going to be settled today. And that's where our scene leaves us today. We're going to actually finish this whole story out next week. But the scene for today ends there. What a story. I love the, the ups and downs of this. It's just such this, this powerful picture of how good God is and how often, honestly, if, if we're being real, right, like we just ignore that and try to mess things up. What do we do with this text? I, I want to just, to close out today, I want to give two thoughts. I say close out. I got a couple more minutes. I want to give just a couple thoughts to kind of wrap this around for us today. And it all comes back to this contrast between Naomi and Ruth. I think this text hands us that contrast pretty clearly between kind of the scheming of Naomi and then this faithful boldness of Ruth. And, and, and really quick, I want to say this piece because I feel like it, it kind of feels like I'm just beaten up on Naomi today. And I'm not trying to. I think Naomi's fear, I think her anxiety, I think her scheming really are understandable. 
I mean, Boaz's kindness to them is great, but the reality is, again, the harvest was over. There's no more gleaning to be done. They had been around him three months, and from their perspective, he had not acted. And the idea that Boaz's compassion for them simply had a limit that didn't extend to redemption because of the public shame involved in marrying a Moabitess and the hard work involved in redeeming the land. I mean, it was just a likely scenario. It's understandable why she went the direction she went. She took things into her own hands and she tries to lead Ruth into sin to manipulate Boaz into getting her what she needs for her family. It doesn't excuse it, right? But it's also understandable. I think I think we can all see this is not the way of the Lord. And yet I also think we can all go, eh, I can see how I might go a similar direction in the same kind of scenario. I think many of us, when we're faced with loss of control, when life falls apart, when we are stressed, when anxiety and worry are on overdrive, I mean, we may not be sending our daughter-in-law out to a drunken party, to try and like do some wild stuff. But actually, it's pretty relatable, the mindset. I've got to take care of me and mine because obviously no one else is. I mean, how many of us go straight to that kind of control scheming when things are falling apart, when your anxiety is on overdrive? It's so easy to turn inward, to try and control and manipulate to get what you want and you need, and to assume that no one has your back. It's so easy. It's a natural response. But beloved, that's not the way of the kingdom. And just to say this as bluntly as I can, like Jesus speaks directly into this idea. I'm going to read a little section from the Sermon on the Mount. This is in Matthew chapter 6. Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? I mean, consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add a single moment to your lifespan by your worry? Why do you worry about clothes? Observe the wildflowers that grow in the field. They don't labor, they don't spin thread, and yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown in the furnace, won't he do much more for you? Oh, you of little faith. So don't worry saying things like, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek after all these things. But your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble. Dang. Was he speaking to people 2,000 years ago or to us today right here, right now? I mean, yes, right? Anxiety, worry, fear, control, beloved, these are simply not things of the kingdom of God. They're not of the kingdom. Now, I know that even as I say that, this gives this kind of spike of pain for many of us in the room. As many of us in this space struggle with mental and emotional health, 
The kind of things that cause our anxiety to go out of control. And if that's you in this space, please don't hear me attacking you today. That's not what I'm trying to do. I promise you, I promise you. It's not an attack on you. But I do think this is, this is an encouragement for us to stop and consider our own hearts. The heart space of worry, fear, anxiety, this is not what Jesus has for you. If you're conquered by these things, if seeking to control every aspect of your life, like if that's something that actually dominates your thoughts, your heart during the day, beloved, I promise you that Jesus has more for you. That does not have to be your forever. It does not. You're not doomed or sentenced to that in this life. You aren't. Beloved, Jesus sees you. He sees you. He cares for you. You need not live controlled by fear, worry, anxiety, scheming. Healing from this intense kind of wound, I mean, I'm going to be for real with you, like, it probably takes a lot of work. That's not something you can just hear me say that and go, oh, shoot, yeah, I shouldn't worry about stuff. I hadn't thought of that. Thank you. Like, it's, that's, not, that's not how it goes, right? Like, you very likely would need some specific discipleship. I need to dig into some time of encouragement and scripture studying discipleship with a friend or brother and sister in Christ. You may need to go to counseling and meet with someone just one-on-one for a season to dig into this. Heck, you might need to get on some meds for a season or for a long season. But beloved, I promise you, promise you, Jesus has more for you. He has more for you than a life of worry and fear and anxiety and scheming and trying to control. Scheming did not get Naomi what she wanted or what she needed. It didn't provide for her family. If anything, it put that provision at risk. God gave Naomi what her family needed. And he was already working on her behalf in the midst of her worry, in the midst of her fear, in stuff she just didn't know. Stuff happening in the background, parts of the, of the puzzle she couldn't see. God was already working on her behalf. She didn't need to scheme. The opposite of this kind of scheming, I believe, is trust. It's the knowledge that Jesus sees you. It's the knowledge that he knows the hairs on your head, that he sees you're coming and you're going, that you can actually trust him to care for you. Trust. Trust over fear. Trust over worry. Trust over anxiety. Trust over control. Trust over scheming. Perhaps this is why Jesus tells his followers to approach him with the faith of children. To even model our faith on the faith of children. Because kids trust. And because, beloved, Jesus is trustworthy. He is. There's another side of this whole deal that I actually think is important. And I think we see it in Ruth's part of our story. There's this cliche in Western Christianity today that you've probably seen on someone's Instagram post it says, let go and let God. Have you heard that one? By the way, like, just like all cliches, it's actually birthed out of a lot of truth in the statement. I mean, 
It's the idea behind it is that it's what we just said, right? It's trusting God's good heart of care and provision for us, right? Like that's a that's a beautiful and true and necessary thing. But I also think it's very easy to overcorrect and allow a statement like that to just lead you toward apathy and complacency. We can quote unquote wait on God to take care of everything in our life. And what we really mean by that is we just stop doing anything to seek our own good or to seek righteousness. Beloved, that's not what God is talking about when it comes to trusting him. Trusting God is not passive. It is not complacent. Trusting God is active. It's bold. It's risky. We see this in Ruth's boldness to challenge Boaz as a brother in covenant to care for her. Ruth is a perfect picture of this faithful, trusting, proactivity. She believes that God sees his people and cares for them. She believes that. She trusts that God's covenant people will do the work of physically providing God's care. And because of that, she boldly asks for it. She asks expectantly because she trusts. She took initiative. I think this is part of what Jesus means in that text we just read when he tells his followers, seek First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. He doesn't say sit on your butt and wait and see what God does. He says seek the kingdom. Live for the kingdom here and now. Walk forward in your life in faith and trust, seeking after Christ. Beloved, if you're in this space today, fear, anxiety, control, scheming, worry, whatever word you want to use for that, if that's a part of your story, And seeking first the kingdom might very well look like just confessing and bringing these things to the light for the first time. It might look like asking brothers and sisters to help pray for you, to help disciple you, to help guide you toward freedom. It might mean taking the bold step of bringing this into a light and contacting a counselor or a doctor who loves Jesus. But by the way, even if that kind of anxiety doesn't control your life on that level, I'm still pretty confident that every single one of us in this room needs to be reminded that faith is proactive. That seeking the kingdom is not passive. That Christ has called you to walk toward him in faith. To trust him with a trust that inspires boldness and risk for the sake of the kingdom. To actually trust that God means what he says. That Jesus is who he claims to be that his church will do what he's called it to do. That kind of trust, that kind of boldness, it pushes us to things, pushes us to plug in to the life of the church, to disciple and be discipled, to engage in community, to go out to the lostness around us and tell people about Jesus. It pushes us to make decisions that are kingdom-centric, and not centered on what makes sense by this world and its desires. Pushes us to make decisions about our relationships, about our career, about our finances, about our family, all sorts of heavy, risky things that say, man, if Jesus isn't actually for real, if he, if he actually isn't who he says he is, this is a bad idea. But I believe he is who he says he is. So I'm going to go out and do this. That's what we're talking about. Proactive faith, proactive Trust, beloved, you worship a God who sees you. Beloved, Jesus sees you. He loves you. 
You worship a God who delights to care for you. A God who delights to meet your needs. You need not worry. You need not scheme. You can trust him. You can seek him. You can just see what happens. Chris, come up here. Here's, here's what I... I said that really aggressively to you, Chris. I'm sorry. Get up here now. <laughs> what I'd like for us to do to end out our time. I just broke the moment. I'm sorry. Chris is going to play some music, and in just a minute, I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing a song. But I want to encourage us, before we do that, let's all take a minute to sit in prayer with Jesus. And however you need to do that in this space, if you want to sit in your seat and do that, that's awesome. If you need to find some space in the room to get on your knees and talk to Jesus, if you want to grab one of the pastors or one of the deacons and ask them to pray with you, that's fine. We'd love to do that. But I want to encourage you, take the next two, three minutes with me. And let's have a conversation with Jesus. And let's talk to him about the this. What does it mean for you to trust Jesus? What does trust in Jesus look like for you today? For some of you who are still considering whether or not you even want to follow Christ, I'll just let you know, spoiler alert, that's what it looks like to trust Jesus. Trust him as your savior. Trust him as the one who paid the debt for your sin to forgive you, to draw you into his kingdom. But for those of you who've been following Christ for a while, it might be time to be honest with Jesus about your complacency. It might be time to have an honest conversation with him about your own fears and your own anxieties and your own desire to control things. And I would encourage you, in the silence of this moment, before we leave this space today, just ask the Spirit of God, what do I need to do to walk forward boldly in faith for you today? I'll just warn you, it may be something he's been telling you for five years and you've been avoiding Ask him to tell you again. Ask him to hit you fresh with it. See what he says to you. Take a few minutes, be with Jesus, and then I'll pray to close out that time.